CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsourced solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic, here with my usual co-host, Jonah Bronstein of Bronstein Enterprises. Thank you to everyone out there for giving us a listen, giving us a watch. Please do us the favor of liking the podcast, rating it, subscribing to it, all the different things that you can do. We urge you to do so. We thank you for your patronage. And what that does when you uh, click on all those little doodads, it allows us to do more things in terms of production. YouTube and its algorithms, they like to cater to people who have more subscribers, all the different views, all the different ratings, whatever. There's something just baked into the casserole of podcasting that uh, things get incrementally or sometimes exponentially better uh, when people uh, show their appreciation. So we urge you to do that. And thank you for being listeners slash viewers. Uh, Jonah, it's a great time of year. Everything's going on. The Sabres have a few games under their belts. The Bills, of course, are deep into the season, a third of the way through the NFL regular season. Baseball's going on. Basketball's about to start. Um, it's for a sports fan. It's this is maybe the best time of the year. Well, some people call it the sports equinox, which we're maybe a week away from the moon's aligning for that to happen with the basketball season not started yet. But the MLB playoffs are going strong. Jonah Heim, Amherst Central High School graduate, all-star catcher for the Texas Rangers, happened to have the winning RBI in games one and two with the ALCS and a home run in game two. First Western New Yorker to hit a home run in the MLB playoffs in 30 years. Uh, so, you know, there's there's things to watch. In all Who was the last one? Seasons. Uh, Dave Hollins. Oh, of course. Pride of Orchard Park and uh, a great postseason. Well, a great player, period. Um, he's probably in the Phillies Hall of Fame. If the Phillies have a Hall of Fame, he should be. Yeah, I don't know that much about Phillies history to know if he would or wouldn't be, but I think he's a you know, first ballot Western New York baseball Hall of Famer and probably uh, had that type of success and would be worthy of such enshrinement. All right, let's see. The The Phillies have a wall of fame. Let's learn this together, Jonah. There is a wall of fame with the uh, Phillies, and there are a lot of people in it, so it's not as though it's a super exclusive group. Uh, hell, if Juan Samuel's in it, then Dave Hollins is not in it. Dave Hollins not in there. 
I mean, there are some, I mean, I get it. You know, Charlie Manuel, the manager, Bake McBride, Ron Reed, Manny Trio. I mean, Manny Trio was an all-star, but Manny Trio. Um, all right, now I got to look up Dave Hollins. I'm sorry to go down a little rabbit hole here at the start of a podcast, but let's see about Hollins and his numbers. Maybe I'm overrating him. He was an all-star. Um, a career 260 hitter. Um, 27 home runs in 1992, 93 RBIs. He had 93 RBIs in back-to-back -back seasons, had another 85 with uh, Anaheim in 97. Maybe he just didn't play in Philadelphia long enough. Um, five and a half seasons with the Phillies. Um, all right. Maybe I was overrating him and, and baking oh. in some of those uh, other numbers that he had. Speaking of Bake McBride, maybe I'm baking in too much of his time with Anaheim but uh, was not on that World Series team. Yeah, what? I would say, though, being an all-star one year, receiving MVP votes the year before, and being a player who came back and finished his career with a few games in Philadelphia after starting his career with the Phillies, I think puts him in discussion for a team honor like that. Sorry, he was on the World Series team, uh, the Phillies, in 93 when they uh, – uh, beat the uh, Atlanta Braves in six games and then lost to the Blue Jays in six. A um, couple of home runs in the NLCS. And then, uh, yeah, all right. Still a, a fine career. Sorry, Dave Hollins, but uh, I, I remembered you having a greater Phillies career than you did. I guess the, there's worse things than being uh, remembered fondly. Um, Sabres fans have not remembered uh, the excitement uh, of last year uh, too fondly. Uh, crowds have not been the best. Uh, the season opener against the New York Rangers had a lot of life to it, but uh, the two home games since, Tuesday against Tampa Bay and then Thursday against Calgary, a lot of empty seats, and the Sabres really not doing much to compel their fan base to come out and see them live still very much in a prove it mode i think to the fans despite the expectations being up despite uh expectations of being a playoff team jonah what's been your vibe you've been out there for all three home games i've only been out there for the one um what's been your take on on fan reaction here through four games well, initially, it seemed like the Sabres had won the fans back in some way with selling out the opener and the energy. And a lot of Rangers fans, though. Anytime the Rangers scored in that game, it was a pretty loud crowd. There was. Uh, well, there was a number of Rangers fans. I think you come to accept that. And I think that's what's been missing this past week is probably not having Flames fans and Lightning fans in the building to fill some of those seats, but also just the party in the plaza and the dedication for RJ way and the fan interest that seemed to be there for game one didn't follow to, you know, game three and four, the next two home games. 
But it's still, a, I think, a work in progress. I think you'll see a much bigger crowd Saturday night when it's the first game of the year when they're wearing the black and red goat head jerseys and also a Saturday night, not a weeknight game. And I think October games seem to be difficult for the Sabres to get good walk-up crowds and big crowds, especially on the weeknights. So I think when really analyzing the attendance and judging things, it would have to be premature and you'd have to get much further into the season, into the second half of the season to really compare numbers from a year ago and see where this team is at. But I think a lot of it has to do with whether the Sabres are contending for a playoff spot and the newness of the Sabres just being a good team and fun to watch is kind of worn off and the Sabres need to win games and be in playoff position, I think, to keep the fan interest throughout the end of the season. And I think the Equinox hurts the Sabres every year, really, with the exception of those really super special seasons when everybody was worked into a lather. Um, I'm mostly thinking of 2006, 2007. Uh, The arena is going to be empty because too many uh, are invested both emotionally and financially in the bills. And people just don't have maybe the money uh, to go out there or they don't have the time. They're loading up their weekends for the tailgates and for the parties, whether you have people over into your man cave or go to the bar or have tickets to Highmark Stadium. I think uh, it's tough to give your energy so many different times on a weeknight uh, to a hockey team that is still trying to find its legs. But I think that the Sabres uh, would benefit from a little boost in energy uh, and, uh, Veteran D-man Eric Johnson last night uh, was pretty much saying uh, we need to give these fans uh, a reason. Now, he didn't directly say something about the fans, but he was talking uh, about his teammates. Derek John or uh, Eric Johnson um, aggravated already after four games. Yeah, it was an interesting soundbite and, you know, conversation with Eric Johnson. Um, because I don't think he sounded aggravated. I think he was very matter-of-fact and kind of laying it on the line and called out the team, but in a way that that wasn't like a calling out his teammates. It was calling out everybody together and really making it very clear that, um, you know, as offensively skilled as the Sabres are, as many goals as they can score, as exciting as they are, as young as they are, as bright as the future looks, they won't win enough games and won't be a playoff team and won't be a team that can compete in the playoffs unless they have a better commitment to playing team defense. And that is the reason they lost last night against Calgary. Pretty much all of the goals allowed uh, could be attributed to giveaways or mistakes higher up on the ice and and in the offensive zone. And if they don't. And the Sabres probably got away with one on the no goal call that needed to be reviewed for a long time uh, by Toronto in which Devin Levi really seemed, it was one of those, it was ruled a no goal on the ice the video was inconclusive. You couldn't see the puck crossing the goal line 100%. But based on where his foot was, where the pads were, it looked like it was. It should have been a goal. And that, yeah, was, that was would have been goal. another one, too. Yeah, and, and then there's a different conversation they have about Devin Levi and the goaltending. Um, at the very least, they don't have a, a goaltender that can steal them wins right now. Or they don't have the reliability in Devin Levi to make up for any defensive deficiencies in front of him um they might be trending towards an even worse situation with the goaltending and back to the unreliable unstable uh net that they've had for many seasons going back now i don't know if they're there yet but at the very least they don't have 
standout goaltending right now and don't seem to think it a strong indication that they will have that anytime soon. And that just magnifies the need to play better and play more veteran in front of the goaltender. And they don't seem to really have that in their game right now. Yeah. Maybe too much too soon uh, for Devin Levi. You take a look back, maybe he should have gotten one of these games off. And of course it's early in the season should be full of energy. What's the big deal. He's young, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But he is a rookie. And maybe he should have been eased in a little bit too much too soon. What are your thoughts there, Jonah? I don't know if it was too much too soon because of how well he played at the end of last season and how mature he did seem coming into the season. And also the fan hype and popularity. I think it was very much earned that he was the opening night starter. I am curious. And and let me add the point too. Playing all four of these games, you want to find out what you have. So Don Granado isn't just necessarily going to piece together necessarily what is best. He needs to find out what's best. You know, maybe Devin Levi needs uh, to not have a break. I mean, there are different rhythms, and 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 every goaltender is his own <laughs> psychiatric uh, case study. Um, so I, I do think that it, there's value in pushing him out there for these first four games. Hell, maybe it's going to be a fifth. I don't know. But um, well, I think Don Granado is is finding out what he has in Devin Levi, and that's important. Right, but the Sabres also have three goaltenders on the roster, and that's created some squeeze elsewhere at, at other positions. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to carry three goaltenders if you're only going to play one goaltender every single night. And also, yeah, maybe Devin Levi, as you mentioned, is more comfortable playing more often and not having long breaks. However, he's an NHL rookie coming out of college hockey where they play a much different schedule, usually twice a week, and you don't always play the goaltender back-to-back nights. So he hasn't played this every-other-day professional hockey schedule before, so there's really no way of knowing either way whether that's good for him. And it would seem a young player, a young goaltender, Uh, is not really ready for that type of schedule. Maybe the plan was to stress him to see how he handled playing every single night and how that would affect him and then how he responds to that. But now he doesn't practice today. He's day-to-day with some type of lower body injury. I would assume that means he does not start on Saturday night and they finally go to one of the backup goalies, Eric Comrie, I I would expect. Um, But maybe it does not. You know, that hasn't really been announced yet or declared yet. And, you know, it might be play Devin Levi every game until the wheels fall off and go from there. Off the top of my head, I don't know what Comrie or uh, UPL's career numbers are against the New York Islanders. Uh, That's the next opponent uh, at Key Bank Center tomorrow night at seven. Uh, But I think we can infer from Don Granado's opening night lineup that Eric Comrie is the backup of choice because UPL was in a suit uh, and UPL was wearing pads uh, in the, in the opener. So uh, UPL again, was the backup last night. Yeah, I know I it's flipped that, around. He's, right, he's been alternating have... probably to keep him mentally alert, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, I think that Eric Comrie is the, is the backup. And uh, so, yeah, maybe it would be good to, for, for, uh, um, for Devin Levi to, to sit this one out. The uh, the not practicing part, uh, you know, it's 
lower body injury, who knows, maybe a little gamesmanship. Zach Benson also didn't practice today. I know that there's a, a criteria that must be met regarding keeping him uh, with the NHL and uh, how long the, the the Sabres are allowed to have him. What, what's the background on that again, Jonah? I know you just wrote about it for WIBB.com. You know, I don't know the exact number of games, but 10 or whatever it is. Scratch for a, uh, it, that's his entry-level contract. You can play up to 10 games, so nine games or less, and they don't burn the year. Now, with Zach Benson playing in all of the first four games and seeming to be a key player on this team right now, I think it's leaned more towards the idea that he would stay here the whole season and not and burn the entry the first year on the entry level deal. And the Sabres wouldn't be worried about that, but they are still within that range and they can decide uh, to send him back to junior later in the season. There's also a mechanism with the contracts and this comes into play with Matt Savoy as well of having them on the roster as a healthy scratch for a number of games and then being able to send either player down to Rochester on a conditioning assignment and perhaps there's a way it works out that way if Zach Benson goes out to injured reserve, Matt Savoy comes off of injured reserve but doesn't play, you might maybe see Savoy going into Rochester. But that's a lot of – it's doable, but it would take a lot of delicate roster management for the Sabres to pull those type of things off. But also, if they're able to trade one of their goaltenders, they have another roster spot to play some of these uh, paper move games with. And that's another reason why I think you want to play Comrie or UPL because if you're trying to trade them, you kind of want to, you know, put them out there and hopefully they play well and you have an ability to showcase them for another team. Yeah. I don't know that uh, either goaltender other than to show that they're not injured um, needs to put too much on tape. I I think it's a, what you see is what you get type situation with both of these goaltenders, uh, especially Comrie. He's been around the, the league the most uh, UPL has the most upside uh, as a younger goaltender, you know, who's got some pedigree. Um, but I, I get it. I get what you're saying. Yes. You should show them a little bit, but I don't know that it's going to necessarily um, instigate a trade uh, just because UPL has, a, has a good game. Uh, I think uh I think his his trade his market value is probably set. Uh, whatever it whatever it is um, after a, a couple of games is probably what it was three months ago. That's probably the case, but not playing one or two of the goaltenders at all uh, could lower the potential for a trade. I think maybe you might be right. There might be a very low ceiling on what that could do, but maybe preserving trade value by showcasing that they are healthy and are playing well does facilitate the potential for a trade. Now, Don Granado has announced that he's going to mix up the lines heading into this game tomorrow night against the Islanders, getting back to what we saw at the end of last season. Joan, I don't know if you have those in front of you, um, but uh, I know you wrote about this also at WIVB.com where people should go and check out Jonah's work. He writes about everything going on in Buffalo sports. Yeah, I do. I do know the lines. I, I'm looking up a certain stat I want to mention. that will take me a second here. But the main upshot is Casey Middlestad centering the top line. We don't know necessarily if this is going to be how the Sabres line up tomorrow night against the Islanders, but seems like a strong indication with the way they practice today and the need to maybe shake things up 
and go back to something that worked very well at the end of last year when Casey Middlesat was the Sabres top point producer since he moved into the top centerman role. That coincided with a Tage Thompson injury and Tage Thompson coming back and playing the wing while coming back from that injury at the end of last season. This time, what it seems like, it'll be Tage Thompson playing as the center on the second line. Dylan Cousins bouncing out to the wing, who Dylan Cousins was struggling and maybe has been struggling a bit through the season's first half, but he scored the winning goal in overtime against the Lightning on Tuesday and had two assists last night against the Flames. So seemed to be finding his way, at least in the past four periods that the Sabres had played. But this worked well. I think there's reasons why Casey Middlestad isn't a better overall player than Tage Thompson and isn't going to score as many goals as Tage Thompson, but might be a better top-line center in certain ways, and especially with how well he's played overall. It does break up what's been the Sabres' best line, which has been Middlestad with Greenway and Benson on the wing, but Benson's day-to-day with an injury, and maybe he doesn't play tomorrow, and that's probably – another piece that created the mechanism to why the Sabres are shaking up the lines and maybe trying something different going into this last game on the homestand. Hey, real quick. Uh, I don't know if he listens every week, but he's been on the show as a guest. I know he does listen at times. Uh, I want to give a shout out uh, to friend of the show, Ryan Nobles, who covers Capitol Hill for NBC news. What a mess. I mean, I don't want to get into a political discussion, but from being a Jonah, do you think you would enjoy covering politics? Uh, I just saw I it. Mean, we, we exchanged texts earlier today and I was just looking at my phone and I saw that and it popped into my head. And I know that we were just talking about hockey, but. I wouldn't enjoy it nearly as much as covering sports. It would be a different thing. But I also, if you're covering politics and you're covering Capitol Hill and all the craziness, I think that would be actually a lot more fun and exciting and interesting and all sorts of stories to write about. And it's one of these things. It's like covering a dysfunctional sports franchise is actually more fun maybe than covering a well-run sports franchise. So it's sort of a (laughs) dichotomy there. Yeah. I don't know, maybe Ryan Nobles can tell us how fun it was. I don't know if covering Niagara County government would be all that much fun, but you know, sometimes no. you gotta do I don't know, I don't think so. Or even Erie County or whatever. I mean, even as City Hall in Buffalo and but yeah, Capitol Hill, you're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of people that and think of the number of stories on Capitol Hill. Um thousands upon thousands and then of course you have to cover the news of the day uh i'm always amazed uh when i see uh you know you don't see it from ryan nobles as much when he was at cnn you did but at nbc news uh his his reports are more packaged at 6 30 and you know for the newscast but when he was at cnn or seeing manu raju now at, at cnn as these meetings are breaking up and all of this flood of people coming out of the meeting room to know the names and states and affiliations of hundreds of lawmakers. Um, you have the Senate, you have the House, you know, you have their aides, their, you know, communications people. I mean, you have to know them on the spot. And I always wonder if if Manu Raju sticks his microphone in front of somebody and he's thinking to himself, 
who the fuck is this? Um, probably not because he's a professional. Um, for instance, when I covered the Michael Caputo story um, years ago for the Buffalo News, uh, you know, local man goes into the belly of the beast story I did. Um, there was one person waiting for him off the elevator who knew who he was right away. And that was Manu Raju and tried to get a few minutes with uh, Caputo as he was heading into his closed door session with uh, the committee. And uh, I mean, he's got it. It's amazing. I just thought that was that that would be in, the intimidating part for me. If somebody were to say, Tim, you have to go cover Capitol Hill. Uh, I think I'd be able to tell stories because I'm a storyteller. But I it would take me the longest time to figure out who the hell all it's just a sea of faces. Uh, these are prominent people who are elected by their constituents around the country. And do you see them on CNN and, and, and they're giving analysis and I have no idea who this is, but this is a very important person somewhere in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you're giving yourself enough credit or maybe you just haven't done this in a while, but think about covering a visiting team, a visiting locker room, and they don't always have name tags on the lockers. And sometimes you have to, (laughs) you know, guess on the faces or look them up on your phone or and there's a lot of name recalling to do with covering sports yeah i guess i guess but you're watching them perform those are the things that make these names and faces indelible is when we sit and watch for three hours uh the 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 astros and the rangers or the celtics and the nuggets uh, you're watching and it's getting, you know, almost subconsciously you learn all these names. I mean, how do you go watch these guys work? Um, and they don't, there's not a Chiron underneath their name. You're not watching on ESPN and they're showing, you know, the uh, Bobby O'Karake who's got his name on his nameplate. And every time he makes a play, uh, he's got his stats right underneath him. And it says Bobby O'Karake. Uh, They don't do that for, Johnny Stagatz, you know, Virginia House of Representatives. I voted for him, by the way. Hey, speaking of public uh, confidence, the New England Patriots have received 58% of the money, according to Bet Online. Uh, 58% of the money so far this week on the Patriots. Now they're getting a lot of points. They're getting eight and a half, which is their biggest. They're making them the biggest underdogs they've been at home since 2001. Now the spread opened at nine and a half, but because so much money has come in on the Patriots, it's gone down to eight and a half, making it one of the bigger movers of the week in the national football league. Now, again, that's a lot of points. That doesn't say that people expect the Bills to lose this game. But doesn't maybe some of the Bills' shakiness that we've seen here the last couple of weeks play into it, do you think? I mean, maybe if you're talking about moving a betting line one or half a point. My sense is that I think that has more to do with the Patriots and just being that big of a home dog and maybe betters perceiving it as being too big of a line for a home team to be getting that many points. But I I think the. And Josh Allen talking about his shoulder, even though he says everything's okay. I think people get a little skittish when the star quarterback's got a a throwing arm injury. 
that might yeah, be worth absolutely. a point. Sure. Early in the week on a fat spread. Yeah, I think the national conversation on this game has been a lot more of how you know, the Patriots have struggled in one and five for the first time since 1995 and what that means for Bill Belichick and the future of the franchise and Mac Jones, how, you know, uninspiring his performance has been so far. It seems like maybe the betters have decided that that line was a bit too fat and slimmed that down a little bit. But I don't know if it has too much to do with the Bills because I think I don't know. My opinion on the Bills, and I think what might be the sharp opinion on the Bills, is that this is going to be a get right and bounce back opportunity for the Bills. Maybe they don't, maybe they only win by eight points, or maybe they win by seven points and they don't cover that spread, and New England's able to keep this game close. But I think this is an opportunity, although New England's defense is good, but I do think this is, we thought it was going to be a get right against the Giants, and it wasn't. And I think the Bills have another opportunity coming here, and I'm not worried about Josh Allen's shoulder quite yet. No, I'm not either. Although, even though I think he played well with the elbow injury, again, totally different circumstance, totally different injury. Um, he plays through these things and he plays well. Now, does he play elite? Maybe not. Uh, maybe that's, you know, he's lessened a little bit uh, in terms of his ability to uh, throw deep or be accurate, or maybe he's trying to protect that shoulder. Maybe he bails out of a play a little sooner than he would. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could mitigate uh, what he does on a play to play basis with when you're playing with an injury. Um, but he's generally okay through these things. He's, he's, he's a war horse. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't think that this is going to be, uh, any kind of concern. Uh, so I, I believe him when he says that, now, if it were Von Miller saying it, I would uh, doubt it. I would say that it must not be true if Von Miller was uh, making any kind of guarantee. But Josh Allen, I'll, I'll take his word for it. Well, and he played well and threw the ball well in the fourth quarter after this injury may have occurred. And while he, probably, without knowing the nature of his shoulder injury, and he certainly has some sort of issue there, and he said there's a pain management aspect to it, there seems to be no indication that it is a performance affecting injury yet that it's taken anything off his throwing or quarterbacking ability. Maybe if he takes another hit and somehow worsens that injury, it's a different story, but it seems to me, as he said, no concern and really nothing right now. Joan, I want to bring up uh, for discussion, uh, the question that I asked Ken Dorsey on Monday, or excuse me, that I asked Sean McDermott, uh, on Monday, the Zoom call, I was not aware that it had made at least waves on social media. I don't know if it became a story. Um, I did not make it a story. Uh, I didn't even tweet about it. I didn't even realize it until Tuesday night. Uh, I'm on Twitter and I see people talking about the person who asked Sean McDermott about the play calling uh, was disrespectful should have his credentials yanked, uh, was cowardly not to ask uh, Ken Dorsey about it. Um, the uh, Bills injury report's coming out here. Oh, no, Bills PR is saying that they've signed uh, Ty Johnson, a running back to the 53-man roster, and have put Damian Harris on injured reserve. Uh, the reason I'm checking uh, the injury report so closely while we podcast here is because we heard earlier today 
that uh, Ed Oliver was out. Sean McDermott said he was out, but then he was spotted at practice. So Sean McDermott saying he's out is not official. Uh, designations like that aren't official until they're filed with the league in the afternoon, I believe, or post-practice. So we're waiting, uh, at least uh, Jonah and I are waiting to comment on Ed Oliver's absence uh, because we don't know uh, 100%. We were hoping for that ruling to come, but instead this alert that I get from the Bills is regarding Ty Johnson after we heard, uh, I think it was heavily implied earlier in the week that the Bills were signing um, Leonard Fournette. Leonard Fournette. That didn't, you, that, the only thing missing was Von Miller saying that the Bills were signing Leonard Fournette. Uh, anyway, back to my question to um, uh, Sean McDermott. And the reason I want to bring it up is because we talk about journalism things on here all the time, and we get a lot of positive feedback when we do talk about it. Explanation about how the sausage is made. I think that a lot of people who do care about this type of thing find it enlightening because the on the surface perception of what happens is rarely how it, it really occurs. So I want to repeat exactly the question that I asked Sean McDermott, I asked him, uh, uh, how much consideration would you be willing to give someone else on your staff calling the offensive plays? Question mark. That was it. No mention of a negative trend. No mention of an awful stat. No mention of a rut. No mention of anything. Not even really. Well, I didn't even mention Ken Dorsey's name. We know who I'm talking about. But um, again, I'm going to read it. And the reason I'm reading it is because I need people to, or I'd like, I don't need them to, but I would like people to understand the nuance of asking a neutral, open-ended question. This is not a yes or no answer. I do not load it up with anything positive or negative. I don't mention the other four offensive play callers on the staff. He doesn't have to avoid anything. He's just, I'm asking him for his own, what he's thinking, because he's the head coach. My opinion about the play calling doesn't matter. Your opinion about the play calling doesn't matter. Bill's Mafia's opinion of the play calling doesn't matter. When it comes to this particular question, the only person who matters is Sean McDermott. The question again was, how much consideration would you be willing to give someone else on your staff calling offensive plays? He said, zero. That was his answer. I followed it up with a question regarding how the other four former offensive coordinators on his staff collaborate with Ken Dorsey. He answered that question. I then asked him what he has been most pleased with or proud of regarding his offense so far this season. He mentioned the Raiders game and the Dolphins game, two out of the six games. I wrote a story about the the offense needing a kick in the pants. That was it. I didn't call for any heads. Didn't say it was time for a change. All I wanted to know is if Sean McDermott was considering a change. 24 hours later, I'm seeing that I deserve to be, I need to be fired for asking the question. I don't get the disconnect on something so simple. Um, there were people who were saying, why would Sean, I even got a pushback saying, 
it's unfair to even ask Sean McDermott this question because he's a defensive-minded head coach. He's the fucking head coach. <laughs> he's the one who hired Ken Dorsey to do this job. He's the one who decides if Ken Dorsey keeps the job. He's the defensive-minded coach. Does this mean that Ken Dorsey is infallible and untouchable? No. All I want to know is if professional, highly paid, veteran, safe, in his role, football coach Sean McDermott has given any consideration to the four former NFL offensive coordinators already on his staff, five if you want to include Kelly Skipper, who was offensive coordinator at UCLA. Any consider I even said, how much consideration would you be willing to give? I thought it was a very well-crafted question to seek information and people shit themselves your thoughts i thought it was a very fair line of questioning and well within i think the storylines coming out of sunday night's game and the right vein of questioning i think with where the bill season is now and has gone over the past couple of weeks as compared to you know how well they did play an offense before that. I but thought, I think, and I don't mean to be too self, I'm not, don't want to be self aggrandizing, but I thought I was doing a service by asking this question. If you don't, if you believe that Ken Dorsey is the absolute coach and should be, then you're welcome. You just got your answer from the head coach. If you think there should be a change, you're welcome. You just got the answer as to what the coach thinks. Right. And a service to the flow of information. If there is any, question or curiosity about this topic from anybody that wants to read about the bills hearing sean mcdermott react to those suggestions or kind of discuss his thought process with having that many experienced play callers on the team and why he wants to do it the way they're doing it uh is certainly fair and it wasn't a you know a column or a challenge on sports radio uh insinuating that you think somebody else should be calling the place what I didn't see and I'm kind of missing here is all of the backlash and whether you're kind of just overreacting to Twitter bots or were there valid. No, there were a lot of, it was, it was quite Eric Wood uh, tweeted about it, about how ridiculous it is to think, to even consider that, that Ken Dorsey is doing a bad job. Uh, a lot of the local um, podcasters who I have great respect for. So, I mean, if, I don't think it's just bots or, or fans. There was a, quite a, I think uh, the national media was tweeting about the question. I don't think that they criticized the question being asked, but it was considered news. I know that Jay Skursky tweeted about it, not negatively. He just was, re, you know, people who heard the question tweeted it out immediately that Sean McDermott says um, there's zero chance or zero consideration being given. Jay, Jay tweeted it out. I believe Elena Getzenberg tweeted it out. Uh, Andrew Siciliano from the NFL Network tweeted it out. I think anybody who was monitoring that news conference for news tweeted it out as newsworthy. And, and people I, were like, who the, people... who the F asked that question? Fire him. And again, I understand... I. I to me, this is more of a disconnect between the media and the fans... I don't, I, it's not the question per se. It's that people find it. Di how, how have we gotten to a place where I am, I am 
disrespecting the coach of the team and asking him his thought process. I mean, it's just, it's a, I don't take personal offense. I'm a, I'm, I'm just troubled that people out there don't understand how journalism works to the point that if don't be mean, stop being mean or to my, my favorite people, stop being, stop being rude, stop making Sean McDermott uncomfortable. Even though it was a question that was, couldn't even be described as pointed. I just, I, I feel like everybody's gotten soft. Well, not everybody. I think there's way too many people who've just gotten soft in terms of everything is offensive. Everything is, is just uh, asinine was a word I saw a lot. Insane. Um, I'm what the fuck? It was a, it was a simple question. And as soon as he answered it, I moved on and I didn't even tweet it myself. It was mentioned in my story about two thirds or three quarters of the way down, just as a point of reference. I mean, I just, I, I can't, I, I mean, people were pissed. Let me ask you this question. How do you think the reaction or how would it have gone over had you been able to ask these questions to Sean McDermott one-on-one, -on -one, not on a public Zoom, and then wrote the exact same story with the exact same quotes? Nobody would have noticed. Nobody, nobody would have, well, because people see, yeah, they saw the clip or they saw that. Yeah. Nobody would have noticed because I wouldn't have made a big deal of it, which I didn't. Um, I was just gathering information. We are on Mondays talking to Sean McDermott on a zoom call and we get Ken, uh, we get Ken Dorsey on the zoom call right after. So if he were to be thinking this, I'm not, I, why would I waste time and, and get him on Wednesday at the facility or Thursday at the facility where I also don't get him one-on-one? -on -one? Those are also news conferences. I guess I could request a little one-on-one -on -one time, but then I don't get to talk to Ken Dorsey about it if he is, in fact, maybe thinking about it. And by the way, for those who maybe are curious, four former uh, NFL play callers on his staff, Mike Shula, uh, who's a senior con uh, offensive advisor or consultant or whatever he is, uh, Aaron Cromer, the offensive line coach, Rob Boris, the tight ends coach, and Joe Brady, the quarterbacks coach, have all been NFL offensive coordinators. Joe Brady, uh, you know, was also the offensive coordinator at LSU, which was practically an NFL franchise when he was there uh, with Joe Burrow and that cast of superstars. Uh, and then Kelly Skipper, the running backs coach, he was the offensive coordinator at UCLA for a bit. So, again, not a, I, yeah, the fact that it was public. Um, you know, here's the thing too, and I, I, it's my pinned tweet now. It's something that I, I've come to realize is that, uh, and, and with the help of, uh, Bill's, uh, super fan, uh, Daniel Thompson, uh, who is a Hollywood writer. He's the, uh, head, it's his, his show is, uh, Will Trent on uh, ABC. Uh, he's been a writer for, um, uh west world and the terminator tv show and a bunch uh, some a bunch of other stuff um and he was mentioning to me a while back that as an outside observer from los angeles he's originally from from new york but as somebody who's following the bills from afar he was fascinated by this reality show that uh that also includes the media not just in Western New York, but I think any team uh, has its media 
they the, the fans have chosen to make the media part of its reality show as part of we get talked about a lot we don't i don't want to get talked about necessarily it's nice for engagement and to help me make money uh and uh ctbk cpas and business consultants sure loves uh when people tune in uh to the podcast to see what i have to say or what my tweets are or what i'm writing at the athletic um but i'm not in i'm not a, i'm not performing here but when people start to critique our performances in these news conferences, whether it's Jerry Sullivan or Tim Graham or John Warrow or Jonah Bronstein uh, or Maddie Glab or you name it, we are now performers by definition of how the fans include us in this reality show. Now, they grant us all kinds of character arcs. Um, how we think, whether we're liberal or conservative, um, motives, uh, there's all kinds of things. And I think I've just kind of come to the realization um, that I think this is kind of cool. And I need to, I'm not as offended by some of the personal attacks that I get anymore, because I've come to the, 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 I've come to accept that I am a character against my will, but that's the way that the the journalism job, I guess, has evolved since I got into it in the early 1990s. Uh, it has evolved. We are now characters in this reality show called the National Football League or the National Hockey League. Mike Harrington, let's throw him in there too. He, I mean, there, there are people love to criticize the media and we're getting critique. I mean, I don't mean just criticized for being asshole, good guy, Homer, uh, 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 great follow, you know, all the, whatever you're going to be. I mean, the critique of the performance, we are now getting our questions critiqued, um, whether we ask them fluently enough, um, whether, uh, whether we're getting dunked on by Kevin Adams or Josh Allen, um, all this stuff is now part of the reality show. And I think, so I'm, I've come to the realization, like I said, that part of it, I guess it's pretty cool. You're going to include me in your reality show. I am honored. And it makes, it puts a smile on my face. Um, but I'd at least like people to understand how this works uh, and what my job really is. My job isn't to perform for you. Uh, my job is to ask this question because I needed that. I wanted, I didn't need it. I wanted that information from Sean McDermott. I wanted to know. I wanted to try to get inside his line of thinking. And if he answers me the other way around, then it is, a, it is a fascinating look and it's obviously the story of the week. So, or I ask him the question, he answers it the way he does. And we can put that issue to rest. We don't have to wonder and we can move on. So I don't know. That was a lot there. I don't know. I, I however you want to uh, add to that or move on. I don't know. Well, I'm thinking back to what you had brought up earlier in the podcast about Ryan Nobles and covering Congress and politics. And in a lot of ways, political coverage has come to resemble sports coverage over the years, especially on television. And you do see a lot of this depending on, you know, what network you're watching, maybe being critical of questions asked, how they're asked or praiseworthy, praising the way questions are asked or challenging officials but there's also 
it's it's flipped in that regard and that I would think that the viewer and reader expectation of a political journalist is to ask difficult questions and to, you know, speak truth to power and hold people accountable and get people on the record, you know, newsmakers and important figures on the record have their position stated publicly on a various issue. And that it seems to be what you're referencing with the criticism you're getting from in the fan base, the opposite of sports, that it is not the journalist's role to ask any difficult questions, to challenge any authority figures, to even raise the issue and give an opportunity for a newsmaking sports figure to state his position and get on the record and, and take a side on an issue. And especially when we're talking something so kind of unimportant as who's calling the plays on offense. I mean, I can't imagine why that would be disrespectful. I mean, it is in some ways threatening Ken Dorsey and his position to raise the topic. But that aside, I don't know how it is in any way disrespectful to Sean McDermott to ask him for his take on that aspect of, you know, the football team and the coaching staff and their duties. Yeah. I, so that's the, yeah, that's the disconnect that troubles me um, is just the, you know, it's. And if anything, it's more disrespectful to comment on it or speculate or form an opinion about the offensive play calling without asking those questions, or at least, you know, uh, using the information that others did, you know, not everybody has to ask the question, but the people that are on the zoom call or are listening use that quote or that soundbite in their coverage of the topic at hand. And I can guarantee it. You know, let's say the Bills score 34 against the Patriots on Sunday, and I'm going to have a stream of tweets or DMs saying, what What do you think about Dorsey now, it, asshole, or whatever whatever. they're gonna eat shit but the thing is is i didn't even pose an opinion all i did was ask a question i uh, you want to know what i think i i think that dorsey should remain the uh, play caller and i think that he does a pretty good job um but it was a question on the minds of, of fans i mean i could tell based on what I hear on WGR, what I see on social media, what, you know, the vibe out there, what, what people say at the bar, um, people stopping yeah, me, it, 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 you know, the old cliche getting stopped at the grocery store. Well, that shit happens. I mean, when I'm at Rite Aid and the, the pharmacist wants to know what's, what's wrong with Josh, you know? So, um, I, so I asked the question because I have the ability to, to ask the question that the fan, that I think a fan would like to ask if he had a chance to have a couple of minutes with Sean McDermott, I don't care one way or the other. If, if Ken Dorsey remains the, the, uh, play caller, I, ha- again, I haven't stated an opinion until now, which is obviously pro Dorsey. Um, but I can guarantee you that just because I asked that question, people are going to want, uh, you know, want me to have some comeuppance in their minds, uh, uh, when the bills start scoring again. Ken Dorsey's approval rating is certainly not above 90% right now. I don't know how low it is, but it's certainly it's not quite Dick Duran level, but I'm sure it's below Brian Dable. I mean, one of the things that I thought, and it kind of got lost in my story that I was writing, uh, you know, Brian flipped the roles on there. How close is that game? If Brian Dable's the, the bill's offensive coordinator 
and and Ken Dorsey is calling the plays for the Giants the other night. Uh, what do you think happens? Uh, yeah, I actually think the Bills probably win that game going away. I think that takes away the dynamic of Brian Dable knowing how to defend uh, the Bills players and the Bills offense and Ken Dorsey in a way being – I don't know if I call him his protege, but somebody who came up. Let's just flip those elements. Let's just flip just those elements. Wink Martindale is still the defensive coach and has all the information that he would have anyway. Um, But they come out of the tunnel and Brian Dable goes to the Bills sideline and Ken Dorsey goes to the Giants sideline. Yeah, I would expect that because I. I always was of Ken the Dorsey with Tyrod Taylor and yeah, the Bills offense and Josh Allen performed better with Brian Dable as the coordinator. And maybe if you line the numbers up side by side, they aren't that much different all of the time, but it certainly feels like something was lost in the ability of this offense when Brian Dable left and hasn't been rediscovered quite yet or rediscovered on a consistent basis. I don't know. I think there's too many variables and too much speculation to really wonder how the Giants offense with Tyrod Taylor would perform with Ken Dorsey calling the plays. I'm not surprised with the way Tyrod Taylor played in so many games with the Bills that he was able to keep that game close and have his team in position to win a close game toward the end and then maybe not do it. That seems to be a script that Tyrod Taylor followed many times as the Bills quarterback. And I don't think any of us should have been really surprised looking at that with the coach and quarterback matchup that it was a close game and not you know, anything close to the point spread that was put out there before the game. Yeah, I just uh, I thought Brian Dable did a pretty good job. Uh, of course, you know, getting to the one yard line twice um, and not getting any points, uh, one yard away f- from putting the Bills into third place in the AFC East because the New York Jets are finding themselves a little bit with Zach Wilson as a game manager, letting the defense do what it does. Um, the Dolphins are pulling away uh, despite that loss to the Bills. They're now five and one. Um, yeah, it, the Bills would have been tied at three and three with the Jets. The Jets have the tiebreaker. We're having won the head-to-head matchup. Um, one yard, one yard. Um, and what and kind also, of conversations would that have led to if the Bills do lose that game to the former offensive coordinator and the former quarterback, and the offense doesn't score for the first three quarters? It seems like the questions you were asking on Monday would have been amplified and probably a more common question and storyline coming off of a loss like that oh for sure uh i think that you know the defense well both sides of the ball because the the defense would have gotten ripped for letting a uh a backup quarterback behind a bunch of junior varsity offensive linemen uh beat them um mcdermott i'm sure would have gotten a lot of criticism for some game management decisions uh kicking, trying that long field goal at the end of the game that gave the Giants a really good field position uh, for that potential game-winning drive. Uh, There were some other things, too. Um, But, yeah, I mean, one yard away from, I think, a a disastrous uh, week uh, in terms of the noise that would be going around and the panic. I think a lot of people are forgetting that uh, Tyler Bass missed two field goals uh, on top of the quarterback having a – uh, a dinged up uh, throwing shoulder. Uh, Ed Oliver, by the way, officially out. Uh, the injury report has come out since we've uh, been doing this podcast. 
Um, again, I, I, I wanted to clarify that. I know Sean McDermott said he was out, but Sean McDermott also has said a couple of things regarding the injury report pre-practice that don't bear out. Um, notably, I'm thinking before the opener when uh, Micah Hyde was supposedly not going to practice and ended up did practice and fully and no issues. But um, And I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that Brian Dable is also being criticized in New York for the clock management and inability to score from the one yard line at the end of the half. And then there were questions after the game about not giving the ball to Saquon Barkley on the one yard line at the end of the game, they didn't score any touchdowns and, you know, went over on two trips to the one yard line within the game. And maybe this, that just kind of underscores the fact that the offensive coordinator or the offensive play caller is always the least popular person in an NFL city after a loss. And in this case with the Bills, I, maybe it's not that bad with Ken Dorsey, but I don't think it should be shocking to the fan base or anybody in the organization that the offensive coordinator has taken any sort of criticism. Right. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I did him a favor by getting him off the hook or getting him off the hot seat, right? By asking the question. Now it's you can move on, but hell, 24 hours later, I flip on – x and uh people are calling for my my head i can't be if i get fired i can't be on your reality show anymore folks jonah is there anything else you want to get to before we wrap it up for anybody still following the ub bulls football season after losing at home against central michigan last week now two and five uh, one more, well, two more losses. They they won't be bowl eligible, but still two and one in the conference and favored on the road by a touchdown at Kent State on Saturday. So still an opportunity for the UB Bulls to contend in the MAC East Division and possibly hit bowl eligibility. But they're running out of avenues now with five losses in the first seven weeks of the season and some tough games coming up, especially Halloween, their first matching game on the road against Toledo. Um, Need this win against Kent State to keep, uh, you know, a winning season alive for UB. I don't want to say I told you so, but anybody listening who found my my gut about Bowling Green being a four and a half point underdog, I hope you took my advice and and bet Bowling Green on the money line, let alone taking the four and a half because it wasn't particularly close. What do we think about Kent State? I haven't seen Kent play at all this year. Have you? Kent State one and six, and it's a team that UB hasn't beaten the past two years with Molinguis as the coach. I actually think that might play in UB's favor a little bit of the, you know, long-term storytelling of a coach and a Mac rivalry. And I think that this is, I wouldn't call it a get-right game for UB, but an opportunity for UB to get a road win to maybe, you know, lick their wounds and bounce back from losing at home and keep the season going in somewhat the right direction. All right. Jonah, thanks for this. Uh, enjoy your weekend. Uh, enjoy the leaf watching. I'm sure you'll be out and about uh, looking at the leaves change. And uh... Big night of high school football rivalries. You going to check out any of these tonight? No, um, I don't know what who's doing what. TNT, West Seneca. Oh, East the West. TNT game. Lancaster, Depew. Both these teams are six and one. Um, 
first time in a while that the pew's been this good and maybe have potential to have a good game with Lancaster. What game is going to mean the most in terms of determining Western New York might? Well, so most of the rivalry games are either non-league or not games that have playoff implications. The game I'm going to actually is the one with the most potential playoff implications with South Park playing against Health Sciences Charter School, not necessarily a rivalry game, but two Buffalo schools and in the same division and will do a lot to determine seeding. And South Park quarterback Noah Willoughby is, I believe, 284, something like that, yards away from breaking Joe Licata's West New York all-time passing record. That could happen tonight. If it doesn't happen tonight, he'll go into the playoffs, you know, very close to setting that record in the postseason. Do you have any idea, ballpark, what he's averaging this year? I did look it up. It's it's about 250, I think, somewhere in the 240. So it's going to so take – So he's probably going to get it. He's going – well, I don't know if he'll get it tonight because Health Size is a very good team and they might um, defend specifically with the goal of, you know, keeping the passing yards down. Or he might have a great game and he might get a 300-yard passing game. If I were to predict, I think he gets about 250 yards tonight and he goes into the playoffs very close to the record. But it could happen tonight, and, you know, if you're going to that game or you're watching that game, it could happen on the last drive of the game or an overtime situation when, when that record gets broken. Tough to follow along at a high school game to know exactly how many yards a guy has and uh, how close he is to the record. Well, yeah, I'm hoping there's some detailed stat keepers there at the game doing it for me so I don't have to pull out my soggy, wet notebook and do it myself. And then you're wondering. And then you, are you going to tweet it out? Are you going to tweet that tweet out a countdown if you're if – you, if you do in fact attend this game, are you so that way people can follow your Twitter and we'll see how it goes. We'll see if he's in position to set this record and whether I'm able to keep my own stats or just because it's not this isn't like an NFL game where there's official stats or even a college game being fed to you in real time. This will be an unofficial stat keeping situation throughout the game. I think there'll be other media there. I do actually think we'll all kind of know. But I've been in these types of situations. Gretchen Dolan set the Western New York single season scoring record last year, and we were keeping those numbers ourselves or myself and kind of knowing the exact basket when that happened from some of our own math. Uh, you know, oftentimes in covering high school sports, you, you have to do it that way. Good times. I'm hoping I don't have to do it that way tonight. I mean, I'd be disappointed if I'm the official – uh, scorekeeper for this game tonight. I don't miss having to take my own stats. That is, uh, that was a chore and not because I couldn't, couldn't do it. It just never lined up with the, what the team said the stats were at the end of the game. Now the team statisticians on the field, look, I've dealt with these high schools before. Sometimes it's, you know, a student who is barely paying attention. Um, but Right, but then what do you go with? Do you go with what you saw with your own eyes and maybe if you have a good press box seat you think is very accurate or more accurate? Or those stats from the sideline often are what get you know reported into the box yeah. score or put online as the official stats. A day later, those wrong stats become right. You have to go with the what is whatever is deemed con, uh, official, I think, because that's what goes into the – the record uh, as far as picking all conference teams or different awards, breaking records, you know, that it's, you might know exactly that that ball was on the seven yard line, but for whatever reason up in the press box, they said it was on the five. 
um, or all the different times that, you know, you're playing on a, a field that gets muddy and you lose the yard markers altogether and you're taking a stab at it. Um, good luck. Um, Jonah, good luck. Possibly watching uh, Joe Licata's records continue to fall. Friend of the show, Joe Licata, former co-host. And uh, thanks to everybody out there. Hey, if you if you if you haven't, please subscribe, like, favorite, rate, do what you got to do to uh, help a brother out. You've been listening to Tim Graham and Friends, brought to you by CTBK CPAs and business consultants. The financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions.